This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to The Gold Derby Show on the Gold Derby Podcast Network. Welcome back to Gold Derby. Christopher Rosen. I'm so pleased to be joined by editor and critic at Screen Crush, New York Film Critics Circle member, and this year's chair, and author of the book Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever, Matt Singer. Matt, how's it going? It's going great. How are you, sir? Wow, so great. So many things. You have so many titles. I stumbled over half of them. You, you did a great job. Don't don't sell yourself short. I was definitely able to understand like 70% of what you said. So you're, we're off to a great start. It's great. It's so good. Uh, we're, so we're here to talk about your book and also... Siskel and Ebert's uh, great, if we pick the winners, Oscar uh, shows, specifically one from 93, which you talk about in your book or write about in your book, mm-hmm. uh, which was a contentious episode that I enjoyed watching on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But first, I wanted to start with the book, which is great uh, and out now. You can buy it. People, if you're watching this or listening, it's a great stocking stuffer. I would think you think you can fit in a stocking. It's a little large for a stocking, but, uh, you know, it's a great gift. Yes. If you have a dad or an uncle in your life, um, and I say this as a dad, uh, I think, I think, yes, I think it's a, it's an ideal movie nerd or movie lovers gift. Absolutely. Do you think your, your kids will get this for you for Christmas and then you don't, they don't have to buy you anything because you probably have ones lying around the house. They could just stick it in, in this, in under the, as for Hanukkah or something, right? That would be a smart move to yeah, just like wrap up my book and be like, look what we got you. We heard you like these guys. We did it. Where, are, where are my presents? <laughs> you know, that would be a, that would be a pretty cool move on the flip side. Maybe I should wrap up the book and give it to them and be like, here, I got you this. It'd be pretty funny to prank them that way. I actually would enjoy that quite a bit. Wrap them and put some coal on top. Yeah. Here you go. go. Oh, you wanted uh, a Pokemon? Oh, sorry. I didn't get the memo. My bad. Not this year. year. It's all about Gene and Roger this year, guys. So I want to ask you this. I had uh, so you've obviously we we were we're we're, we're friends in real life. So I know that you're watched uh, Siskel and you wrote a lot as as a as a youngster know a ton about them did hours and hours of research watching it for this this book and then also interviewing all the people basically who made the show uh who are still around and i guess one of my questions was how was your what was your thoughts i was trying to think of stuff you maybe hadn't been asked or hadn't talked about to death i was like what what was your thoughts in the beginning or what were your preconceived notions about them or stuff you thought you knew that has actually changed having done the book about siskel and ebert well i mean I guess one thing that definitely I liked about doing it that I don't know if it surprised me necessarily, but 
was fun to kind of rediscover, I would say, was, you know, I did grow up watching and loving the show. And then Gene Siskel passes away when I'm still in uh, college, early in college in 1999. He was a really young guy. He was 53 years old when he passes away. And after that, I mean, I certainly watched Ebert and Roper and and other versions of the show, but it wasn't that much. It was not like appointment television for me at that point. And what I really became super interested in instead was like Roger Ebert's writing, his books. You know, around that same time was when the Sun-Times started actually like publishing his weekly reviews on their website. So you could be anywhere in the country and just reading his work every week, which I did, you know, uh, obsessively every week. It became a Friday ritual. What's what's you know, let's read all of his reviews for every movie that's coming out. It didn't matter if we were interested in the movie or not. I say we because this was like me and my fellow nerd uh, nerd buddies in college would do this every week. So. You know, by the time I'm doing this book now, this is like 20 years after that time period. You know, I'm a huge uh, Ebert fan, you know, and I, I and Siskel, who I loved watching as a kid on the show, he doesn't have that. He doesn't have like books. He doesn't have, you know, some of his stuff is available online, but it's on the Chicago Tribune website. You've got to search for it. You've got to be a subscriber to read a lot of it. So I just wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, I couldn't quote Gene Siskel reviews the way I could quote Ebert pieces. So then doing the research, I'm rewatching the show and I'm like, Gene Siskel is really great on this show. He is a delight. You know, he is a grumpy, uh, cantankerous delight. And I think that was one of the things that I really kind of uh, enjoyed about doing the, the book and doing the research was it put me back to when I was a little kid watching it, where I I never really had a favorite as a kid. I always liked both of them together, and I liked their dynamic. So I felt like um, I got to kind of reconnect with uh, the Siskel side of the show because I had I had all the appreciation you could ever need and more for Ebert. And uh, watching the shows, going back and revisiting them, he was uh, you know Siskel was great. He was so blunt and honest, and a great interviewer. And he would he would fight tooth and nail for every point in every review. And I just thought this guy was really good at what he did. He's uh, he's so great. And it's like I thought that, too. I was like, I never I don't honestly don't think I've even read a lot of his reviews. Right. You know, like you were saying, like, I just don't even think I have. And Ebert obviously read all the time. I would read him like the same as you, like religiously on the Sun Times website. And yeah, I noticed that too. The other thing I was wondering, and I want I'm basing this a little on, so we re, we'll talk about this, like obviously that we, if we pick the winners, I've, I've not seen as much of Cisco leading or certainly as you have probably in the last like three or four years, but obviously I watched it a lot as the, as a youngster. And then also have seen clips and stuff repeatedly online that I'll do, but I'm not like watched every episode. But one thing I noticed was, did you feel like, I guess like I found Gene's style of criticism interesting a little bit in terms of, I think both he and Roger had different ways they evaluated the films. Did you feel like that a lot? Like Gene in the, in the, if we pick the winners episode, like a lot of this stuff where he's talking about certain performances, like they they both loved uh, Denzel and Malcolm X, right? We could, which was like, obviously a great performance. But the way Ro, uh, Gene talked about it, he was like, he believed like, it was like, he was, he found the performance great because Denzel believably played like four decades of Malcolm X or whatever many years of Malcolm X compared to like, so that like trick, like that 
was like something he evaluated as possible, like something good. And like with like Michelle Pfeiffer in Love Field, they talk about, he was like, I didn't buy her as a dumb Southern woman. And I just found that interesting. I was like, do you think that that is like, did he put a value on like, oh, if I'm watching a biopic, for instance, or just in general, like if the person looks like the person, I would be more into that. Like, did you like, how do you find like that? He just like had a different, maybe like more of an analytical way to look at these like movies, I guess, like what were like, what were themes that you found in their different styles of how they reviewed? Yeah, they, I mean, they do have um, different uh, styles and approaches and tastes. And that is something that's um, interesting to think about as you're watching so many episodes, you know, like I was doing the book, you do kind of see that they, 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 they were so different. And that was part of what made the show work was that even when they, you know, like you're saying, they're both, um, you know, in this, if, if, if we pick the winners episode, we're going to talk about, it's like, they, they agree on a lot of the picks, but even in a case like a, a Denzel, like you're saying, in Malcolm X, they'll find different reasons that they liked it. They'll have they'll totally disagree on why he should win or why someone should win an award. It, and that's it, very typical of the show is that they could find ways to disagree about things that they technically uh, agreed about. They could give two thumbs up and spend an entire review debating and arguing to to what you're specifically mentioning in that particular moment with uh, Siskel talking about Denzel. I do think that's kind of an extension of something that I observed with him and his taste and what he liked in movies, which was, yeah, he was always talking about, do I believe it? Is it real? You know, Siskel loved uh, documentaries, not that Ebert didn't, but he was always uh, like comparing movies to documentaries, fiction movies. You know, is this movie as good as a documentary? Um, does this person convince me, you know, to your point about Denzel, like, does he convince me he's the real Malcolm X? Do I forget I'm watching an actor or am I, am I always aware I'm watching a movie star playing someone? And that to him, kind of like in that segment, like the greatest compliment he could give was that I believed it. It was real, you know. Whereas I do think Ebert would sometimes look at it, a, you know, from a slightly different way. Obviously, he had to believe it. It had to be plausible or whatever. But he, you know, I you didn't often get that sense that he was he needed things to be quite so close to reality or that it had to convince him. Like, you know, like. I don't know if this is uh, me reading too much in, but I mean, Siskel grew up kind of one of the things, his ambitions when he was a young man before he wanted to be a, a journalist, much less a film critic, was he, a lawyer. He wanted to be a lawyer. Hmm. And, you know, there's kind of an element of like, prove your case to a lot of his reviews. You know, there's a lot of like, sometimes his reviews feel like he's almost prosecuting the movie. You know what I mean? And uh, maybe there's a little bit of that in there as well. I don't know. I, I kind of think there is. I feel like like nowadays we'd say Ebert a lot of times, at least again, just in revision is like watching this stuff now and, and in reading. I feel like a lot of his like. I feel like some of his stuff is like vibes more. Right. You know, what I mean, like he wants to feel something like it's like he's looking on like you said, like he wants and he obviously has like. I just feel like Ebert had more of a capacity for vibes. Maybe I don't know. Or yeah, feeling, right? yeah like, I, I've, I've never like that. I've never thought of it that way, but I. I like that. Ebert had more of a capacity for vibes, as the Youngs might say. <laughs> but I do think that that's probably true. I do think yeah. there's some truth in that. Uh, the other thing I was thinking, too, is that, like, and they, you kind of talk about, I think, would they have famous disagreements? Like, um, is it 
Ebert loved, uh, or gave a thumbs up to, I think, Cop and a Half, right? And that was a contentious one for the both of them. And and Gene uh, and and Roger uh, Gene, excuse me, was like, you, "This movie is a, for idiots and kids who are idiots, basically, right?" But I do feel like, and did you get this sense in all your research? I do. Like Roger felt like he rate he reviews the movie not on a curve, but on like what the expectations of the movie are. And like you're saying, like Gene maybe just is like prosecuting the movie and like fuck this, I don't believe this at all. And it cop, but like Roger's like maybe for a cop and a half. It's about a cop and a half. I'll, you know, if that's the premise, I'll buy it. And then, like, if the movie succeeds on executing that premise, you know, I'll give it a positive review. Did you get that right. sense, or is right. that like not necessarily true? Yeah, using rudimentary math, I can confirm this film does contain one and one half cops. Therefore, <laughs> thumbs up. Um, yes, I, I. Again, we're getting into sort of which I enjoy, like thinking about broader issues of. Uh, film criticism and also just like how and how to approach like going to the movies and what makes a good movie it's like getting to the root of such a basic question but a lot of their reviews are almost less about the movies than about the idea of movies and what makes a good movie like cop and a half being a, a good example um like what you're saying like yes roger would sometimes say well this movie has very low ambitions but uh, it succeeds in achieving what it sets out to be, whether that was like a harmless kids movie or, you know, something, you know, or like a dumb action movie or whatever. You know, this movie isn't trying to be a masterpiece. It is merely trying to, you know, entertain children. And on that regard, I can give it a pass or, you know, sometimes he would even give a movie a negative review, a thumbs down. But he would mention that he would concede, you know, I didn't like this movie, but. I could see little kids liking it because it's a movie for little kids and it does what this sort of thing is supposed to do. And Gene would, ne would never say anything like that and would almost take that sort of statement as an insult. And he would often go in the exact opposite direction. They would re be reviewing whatever the new movie was that week. And, you know, let's say it was like a Western or something and he would compare it to the searchers or the man who shot Liberty Valance or stagecoach and say, well, this, you know, this is I'm making up this example, but it's not that far out of out of bounds. It'd be like say, like reviewing Young Guns 2 and being like, well, I mean, this is not a Western of the caliber of a stagecoach or a, I'm making that up. But that's not like that would not have been wildly out of character for no. Gene Siskel to do that. And Roger would often respond to that kind of argument and say, like, how can you compare this, you know, B movie that is coming out right now to the greatest movie of its type that's ever been made? That's absurd. That's not fair. And Gene's response to that would always be things like, well, I want movies to be great. Why are we even making a movie if we're not at least attempting to make something that will stand the test of time that can be held alongside these great masterworks of cinema? Uh, like, what's the point if you're not going to try to make something great? Why waste my time? And you know what? I can see that argument, too. I think they're they're both valid. They're very different, which, again, was part of why the show worked. But, yeah, they totally did have these different ways of looking at movies, different kind of ways that they would evaluate and measure quality. And, yeah, that was uh, one of the many aspects that made the show work was that they saw everything differently down to like, you know, 
if we agree it's good, why it's good or why it's bad. Uh, yeah. So, yes, I think everything you're saying is kind of right on the money, in fact. Look at that. I, I'm, I'm just like, way oh, to go. Wow. Really, really great. I love, uh, yeah, I just love, I mean, the thing I've also got from your book is like they're so, uh, so themselves, right? Like the most, I feel like they're never once not honest with what they think. You know what I mean? Like, I think that is like something that sets them apart too. And certainly like, I mean, there's no real analog for them now. And obviously the film reviewing space, right? I would argue, right? I mean, I don't think that's like hard to figure, but like in general, like their kind of debate show, we've seen like it has morphed to a million different things, right? Like sports and politics, like this kind of like two guys arguing is like a foundational uh, programming now item, right? On like news and sports. And a lot of times when I watch or see clips of those, I'm like, this is all bullshit because these guys actually don't believe what they're saying they're just like right. taking opposite sides to make it interesting for the for the gram basically or whatever and uh the, not, for the vibes for the vibes they're just doing it to you know start the discourse and not actually believing it and these guys believe every single thing and that's why it really works and i'm just like i don't know this is an existential thing that i think about too just in general of like well roger i'm like how do you there's no replacing this or like even doing this anymore because i'm like i don't think anybody's actually willing to be so honest as they are <laughs> Like basically, right. you know, their yeah. opinions kind I, of crazy. I, I agree. I mean, yes, they were very honest, very upfront, um, and didn't care what anyone thought. They didn't care, you know, what the you know the consensus outside the show was, or even inside the show. It didn't matter if their co-host said this is one of the best movies of the year. If they disagreed, they were gonna say that to the person's face. I mean, okay. the very format kind of encouraged and demanded that sort of bluntness and upfront honesty. Yeah. And it does seem to me that while there are many sort of I don't know if they're imitators or if maybe spiritual successors or, you know, they've they've sort of taken the format, as you said, and they've turned it into this other thing. Um, granted, I don't watch a ton of that stuff, but when I do watch, I do sometimes feel, well, we're not necessarily um, this isn't like an, a, a real argument. It's people picking a side because you can't have an argument without two people on opposing sides. And otherwise, we don't have a show. And I do think to some extent, Siskel and Ebert were fortunate that when they were doing their show, it was allowed to be once a week on syndicated television for a half an hour. I, I'm guessing if some of these sports or political shows were allowed to be once a week for half an hour, they would be more honest because they would have they wouldn't have to invent a new thing to talk about for three hours every single weekday. It's like right. if, if Gene and Roger had been forced to fill three hours of airtime every single weekday, I, I don't know. It, maybe they wouldn't have been honest, but it might have gotten a little more boring because if they were so honest, they wouldn't have necessarily had things to fight about every single day. Like it's, it seems almost impossible that anyone could argue that much that many times every single week, 52 weeks a year. You would, you know, you would just run out of, that level of intense, angry discourse. They would argue, maybe they could figure out how to argue about arguing, I guess, at that point or something. Right, right. So I, I do think that there is a kind of, um, yeah, there that there is a little bit of a, almost like a desperate air to find things to fight about on some of these shows now. Whereas with these guys, they never, um, they, they never felt like they were faking it. Um, and like even the, the episode that will, get into later 
you know, they there is um there's a couple of moments in it where they're having about as intense and awkward a like a tiff on air as you're gonna see on a television show. But then there's a lot of the show where they just are like picking movies and actors and filmmakers and they agree about all of them and they don't necessarily fight. They don't, you know, they and they didn't like the format of these shows. Um, You could theoretically game it where, OK, I want to pick so and so. So you need to pick somebody else just so we have something to fight about. You know what I mean? Exactly. If I'm going to pick um, Al Pacino for best actor percent of a woman. You can't pick him. You need to pick uh, Denzel or maybe vice versa in this case, since they both in that, in that case, they both specifically picked Denzel. Like if you were producing this show and you wanted it to be fireworks nonstop, you could have said, OK, we're going to flip a coin and whoever wins the coin flip, you get to pick Denzel. And then whoever loses, you got to pick somebody else. And I don't care who it is, but you got to pick somebody else. So we have a fight. And that's mm -hmm. not what they did on this or any of these shows. They were actually honest with their picks. And if they disagreed, fabulous. And if they didn't, which happens a lot, they almost seem a little bored by the end because they're like, well, that only could mean one thing. We agree again. You know, that that sort of that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I do think that their sort of radical honesty was part of what made the show a hit and made them popular and made them a big success on talk shows and in other areas where such honesty was totally unheard of at the time. And even though, yeah, you can think of examples of shows that are on now that are very similar in structure, sometimes that is one of the crucial elements that does seem to be missing. Do you have like, so we'll, well, a couple, one last thing maybe on this. You mentioned like them on talk shows. I, you, I think this week or when we're recording this the week before Thanksgiving. But I, you recently shared on, on, on social media, I think, the clip of uh, them with Chevy Chase just shitting all over Three Amigos, which is a pretty famous, uh, famous clip. And I guess like I found their not necessarily their influence, but the fact that they were like, like they obviously like have done like the special they did about the future movies like Scorsese and, and Spielberg. Like they had like relationships or connections to filmmakers right in certain ways and i guess and they still reviewed those movies and were not like automatically like giving a pass which i found interesting do you have like having i guess have you not i don't even know do you have you heard from anybody who's like a filmmaker or something uh either during the research or after that was like oh like talked about their how they were related to this like how their relationship with this this and Ebert worked at all or anything like that i haven't i mean i interviewed a few filmmakers for the book who Generally, these were the directors who had very beneficial relationships mm -hmm. with them. Folks like Errol Morris and Steve James, you know, uh, Wallace Shawn, folks who were whose careers were very obviously uh, improved by Siskel and Ebert loving their work and promoting it. I didn't, and perhaps I should have, uh, maybe found some people who hated hated Siskel and Ebert and hated their reviews and said they ruined their lives. Well, in my research, I found, you know, like on talk shows and stuff, occasionally you could find clips of people kind of making fun of them or complaining about them. There's an interesting appearance where Michael J. Fox talks almost like half the interviews about um, Siskel and Ebert. I think maybe they were on either before him or after him on some show. And so he talked a lot. I think it was with Letterman, although I could be mistaken now, that he, he talked a lot in it about you know, nothing I could do will make Gene Siskel happy or nothing I could say, you know, like or Gene Siskel for a while loved all my movies. Then he hated all my movies. I never quite understood why or things like that. 
So, I mean, certainly there were uh, filmmakers who that were their favorites, and certainly there were filmmakers who were not their favorites. I mean, Roger Ebert never really particularly warmed up to David Lynch. Siskel gave a lot of David Lynch movies positive reviews, but not everyone. And famously, when David Lynch put out Lost Highway and they gave it two thumbs down, they put two thumbs down, exclamation point, on the poster as a as an uh, you know as a marketing tool in an ad which was very unusual at the time and got a lot of attention and probably helped that movie's uh, box office i would imagine because for a certain audience it was kind of like oh well these guys don't get it we're gonna see this you know this movie is is too weird and too messed up for siskel and ebert let's go check it out um like did you think that like i was wondering that too actually like just in general like how like, were they, did they actually end up, like, we have, I think there's a fondness, obviously, wrote a whole book about it, and it's been a nice success, right, seemingly, like, people were reading it and giving it strong reviews and all these different things, so, like, I think there is, like, a a warmth for them, or not even nostalgia, but people have fond memories of their stuff, but, like, at the time, like, you mentioned, like, were, was there a point where they tipped from being, like, cool to not cool, I guess, did you think that before at all, or no? Uh- I mean, I, I don't know that they were ever cool. If you just like literally look at well, any picture us. of these guys. Well, to uh, to us, yes. But I like, mean, like, you, was there a point for you, like maybe watching where you're like, my tastes have changed that I want, like, like you saying, like David Lynch, more right. subversive or whatever. Right, right, right. Um, You know, no, in part because I think, you know, it's one of those things where when a show ends early or an actor dies early and they're kind of, fro- you know, frozen in that in that sort of golden age in your memory for all time. I mean, the reality is, you know, Gene Siskel passed away when I was in college. And so, you know, maybe if the show was still on the air today and they were in their seventies and eighties, maybe I would think they had lost touch. Perhaps we'll never know. I mean, it's very possible that they could have, their taste could have changed in some way, or they could have been less, you know, less willing to give um, airtime to, weirder experimental films or young filmmakers just coming up today. I mean, there. I, I generally don't know that I think that that would have been the case, but I suppose it's possible. And it that didn't really happen because of just the unfortunate nature of reality and history and what happened to these guys. But it is kind of interesting to think about like, yeah, from that aspect, like what if the show had continued and they had both remained healthy? Like, would they have, gradually become less popular or less influential and would would our opinions of them now be different because you know it's it seems absurd to compare these gentlemen to like james dean but there is a little bit of that phenomenon happening here where you know they certainly were on the job for 25 years basically but if things had been different they could have been on the job for 50 years and we don't know what they would have looked like or sounded like or act like or what movies they would have championed if that had happened. And maybe we would have different opinions of them if that was the case. Kind of an interesting, I hadn't really thought about that before, but that is kind of an interesting thing to contemplate. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, the book, and, and uh, we could go now. I want to talk about the Oscars, obviously, and stuff, because that's why we're here. But I will say this book is great. And uh, when you get to their untimely deaths, it's very emotional. It's like a really good, a uh, lot of tears. Lot of yeah. Tears. Do you cry yes. when you're writing that stuff? Um, I did not cry while I was writing it. I kind of had to be sort of dispassionate about that. Sure. But I will say I did I did also record the audio book for right. the book. And reading the chapter on Siskel was hard. I mean, yeah. obviously, I can't be like sobbing because that wouldn't be very good for the reading of it. But that was there were points at it where I kind of had to slow down or take some breaks 
just because it was it is it's it's really uh upsetting and you know like i was saying like he, he was 53 like we're in our 40s now like when i was a kid he just seemed like an old person to me like obviously i was sad i was shocked and very upset that he passed away but i but i the the, the tragedy of this guy being in his early 50s and dying and he had young kids like that did not really r register in the same way it does now to me as a middle-aged guy who has young kids like now oh, it's very upsetting so yeah that was where it kind of came out for me was yeah if if you listen to the audiobook like of that chapter which i i i have listened to parts of the audiobook just to hear how i did i have not attempted to uh listen to that chapter because it was kind of that was kind of rough to record that yeah, uh, I haven't listened to the audiobook yet, but I haven't. Uh, I have flagged in Spotify. I can, I can, oh yeah, it's I can, it's yeah. Uh, tremendous in my very I'm objective. Sure, it opinion. is. I can just tell. Yeah. I can tell. Yes. How it is. absolutely. So, uh, Listen to stop. this voice. Wouldn't you want to hear this voice speaking for nine and a half hours? I can't imagine anything more <laughs> more tremendous and exciting. Uh, so uh, the ninety three Oscars. If we pick the winner, so they did a show. Let, let's just set the table there. They, we did. They did a show every every year, seemingly. Uh, yes. We pick the winners go through the oscar nominations in top categories right and show their winners yeah uh, how this one we're, we're going to talk about is i i saw a ripped version of it on youtube so not the greatest quality but you get the vibe again and uh i love how they have a full studio audience just like just coming to watch these two schmucks in their tuxedos talking about the goddamn oscars i cannot they don't even do anything they're just standing there it's incredible it's astound it is astounding that this is a thing yes <laughs> So they have this whole thing where they come out and do it. The one thing I want to ask you, I, I, I don't if, if you mentioned this in the book, I apologize, but I was like, they don't actually do best director, it seems, or was it cut out of the YouTube version that I saw? Uh, I don't think, I mean, I'm watching the same versions you are, so I'm not 100% positive. My guess is maybe they, they swapped it out this year because they did a few different categories, like they make a big deal that they're doing best cinematography yes, this was, year. Yes, I thought that. That was interesting. So, but yes, so you're sort of, again, setting the stage. Like, they started doing Oscar shows. This is, we're, we're doing 1993. So at yes. this point, the show, Siskel and Ebert, in various forms, has been on the air for almost 20 years now. They started PBS in the mid-70s. They go into syndication in the early 80s. And that's around the time when they really start, like, really building up the like Oscar coverage of the show when they go into syndication and they start doing these specials. I think some of them originally were called like, if we pick the Oscars, then I bet somebody was like, you can't call it that. And then it became, if we pick the winners and it evolved and changed over the years. Sometimes they would do the, the thing where that people do where it's like, well, here's who I think is going to win. And here's who I want to win. And, and sometimes they would do one or the other. The format would evolve in the beginning. They would just they would wear tuxedos, which is hilarious, but they would do it in their usual set. By this point, as you said, they are now doing this show in, in what is absolutely mind boggling to consider. Yes, they are doing this in front of a live audience, which they did not have week to week. Normally, they're sitting in a, in a, in a empty studio in Chicago that looks like a movie theater. For this, they are on the stage of some amphitheater at the Disney MGM Studios which I don't think you mentioned, it is another fascinating aspect because it's not like they set up shop at the Chicago Theater or Radio City Music Hall or somewhere in L.A. where they like encouraged, like, come on out, movie lovers, and hear us talk about the movies. Or even go to like a small venue where they might get like a hun you know, like a podcast might do a live show in New York at the Bell House, right. you know, where you're going to get 
maybe 150 people, but they're, you know, like really passionate nerds. This is like, I don't know, 500 people or more in a giant amphitheater. And they're all obviously like tourists. And again, like what you're saying, nothing happens. They're standing at podiums for an hour. And I'm sure it took a lot longer to record. And they're just standing there and talking about movies. The audience is like made to applaud at like, just like the mention of movies that I'm sure most of them have not seen, perhaps never heard of, you know, like, and then, you know, next up, Michelle Pfeiffer in Love Field, a movie which I should say I have never heard of. Like, like, let's also say that as well, that some of these movies are so like that these were the Oscar movies of uh, 1993. I know one thought I had watch rewatching this and i don't know how you feel chris is like you know oh movies today they're not as good as they used to be that's a perpetual thing and um what what the 1993 siskel and ebert oscar special presupposes is perhaps they weren't back then because a lot of these movies are you know that these were the considered the best of the best i mean obviously there's a, a handful of like movies that we now think of as masterpieces but often they're almost like waved away and like or like said under their breath while they're talking about the these like Oscar bait movies, which I thought was fascinating. So, yeah, there's a lot to, to talk about here. Uh, yeah, not as strong as year. I would say. not the strongest year for Oscars is what I thought. Yes, for sure. So it basically starts. Uh, we don't have to go through the whole thing, but I wrote I, it early in the show is actually like the funny. So they do their best. They come out, like you said, they do their picks and they have, each have their own envelopes. It seems like nice production values. Right. They're going to Yeah, so the they they right, the idea is they go through category category by category and they're revealing who they want to win. This is not their yeah. prognosticating, which they they also did that. Like, I mean, I don't I'm not an expert on like the Oscar prognostication field, and I was kind of wondering this, like when they're doing this stuff, especially in like the early 80s, like what is the Oscar? There's no blogs obviously. Like what is the Oscar watching industry like at this time? Are they the I can't imagine they were the only ones, but like, are they kind of innovating some of this stuff that they're doing whole specials? I kind of think just yes. talking about the Oscars. I think yes, especially like as you're saying, like you were right, like Ebert was one who would do it in in print too, like who should win and who will win, kind of right. And that's obviously been like co opted by actual Oscar bloggers now. So right. like, I feel like there was not that was not a thing then. Like, I think it was like relegated basically to like trade press and like them. Basically. Yeah, I mean, Maybe Cisco. Some, like, Siskel yeah. in print, he had this thing, the Beat Siskel contest that he started within a few years of being the critic at the Tribune. And like he did that every year until he died. And it became kind of one of his signature things in print where like eventually like you were people were um, entering by the thousands to compete for like, you know, cash and prizes and things. It became like at least in Chicago, it became a really big uh, deal. And I, I have to want, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I imagine that sort of uh, gaming the Oscars in that way and betting on them was probably pretty um, novel and certainly I, speaks to the fact that Siskel was a huge gambler and loved, you know, that sort of stuff. And I'm sure that's where that energy uh, came out of. But yeah, it is kind of interesting that, that um, yeah, they're doing a whole special about the Oscars and it's not like the Barbara Walters special that I remember as a kid where, People who are nominated for Oscars are talking with her, which I get that. It's movie stars. It's TV. Right. Here it's just these two dudes talking about, you know, Unforgiven and Indochine and Howard's End and like 
it's that's like what made me laugh it's like all the movies are so so like i'm like the best actors field this year is particularly bad I, or not bad but like particularly like stuffy uh, what is it stuffy it's just stuffy. like that's a nice way to dry it. so it's emma thompson catherine Deneuve for indogene mary mcdonald for passion fish michelle Pfeiffer for love field and susan sarandon for lorenzo's oil which is and so emma thompson wins. they both pick emma thompson which is great uh, right and no, no, not real lot, not a lot of contention there. I would say at the top there. No. Then the next one is best supporting actor, and this is just immediately goes off the rails. And I was like, yes. that they have a whole show left to do. It's just uh, remarkable. Right. So, uh, this is the year of the Crying Game, which was a uh, Neil jo- who directed it. Neil Jordan, right? Who is yep, that? yep. And Stephen Ray is the actor, and Jay Davidson is the actor who plays uh, a transgender woman in the film. And that was like the twist of the movie. It, I would say it has not probably aged. I've not seen this movie, if if at all, in full since this era. Agreed. Same. So I'm going to guess it hasn't aged well, but it was like a big thing. And there's a the Billy Crystal monologue at this Oscars. We did we do an Oscars flashback show. And, okay. Uh, let me tell you, Matt, the uh, Billy Crystal, uh, if you were expecting him to have handled this with a deft, <laughs> uh, sympathetic hand, you would be wrong. <laughs> okay. Shocked. I'm shocked by that. Can't believe it. So uh, he does not at all. Uh, but it was like a big thing that it, the crying game has this like big twist. Oh, I was I mean, I can I mean, I remember at the time. I mean, this the, the twist in this movie was huge. And I knew that. And, and you know, we're going to get into like the fact that Siskel spoils the twist. Yes. That's the big That's the bone of contention here. But like, I mean, I don't if I didn't know it by the time this aired. I mean, that was what it was huge. I mean, that thing. I mean, it's sort of funny now to think about that this movie with that subject, like the thing everyone was talking about was just the twist element of it, yeah. but but not like the hot take element of it, um, which is yeah. not was not a part of the conversation, really, and certainly is not part of this. That's it's n- that's not what they're fighting about. Not at all. And I don't think that they, you know, like to your what you're saying about Billy Crystal, it's not like they say anything like shocking no. or upsetting. No. It's it. They're getting into a, a debate about essentially about spoiler culture, basically. And uh, maybe one thing we didn't quite mention before is that. As on the regular Siskel and Ebert show, they tried not to know what the other was going to say yeah. so that they could get their genuine reactions um, to each other's reviews, which is part of what made their debate so lively is that if they were surprised or shocked or upset, outraged. They were they captured that genuine reaction on camera. Right. So that's also what they're doing here. So that's what the whole idea you mentioned, the envelopes. That's why they have envelopes is that they've each made their picks, but they don't know what the other is going to say. And so that is why this ha- that's how this that we're talking about happens, which is that they get into a huge fight on camera about whether they should say that the, the, the true nature of Jay Davidson's character. Yes. Uh, so Gene is going first. Gene is like a hosting this. Did he like, does he always a host these things basically? Or how does that not really? I think that, I mean, they always wanted everything to be fair. Right. Um, and would argue over who gets to speak more, who gets to go first, who gets to introduce this or that on everything, not just this special. So 
Um, yeah, I, 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 if, if, if Siskel came across as the a-host, Ebert would have hated that you said that probably. I'm, so, and I'm I, sorry. And it would I'm, not, not, I'm sorry. I know. After and it wasn't, it wasn't like the kind of thing where like, you know, Siskel's going to take the lead for this show or this episode. Like that definitely okay. was not planned. If that's the energy that came across, that was, that's, that was not what they intended. That is the energy for me. All right. R.I.P. Rod. Sorry about this. to dismerge your memory here by saying you were not the a-host. But anyway, uh, Gene is like, this is, like you said, it's like literally spoiler culture. And Gene's like, they go through who's going to win supporting actor. The nominees that year were Gene Hackman for Unforgiven, who actually wins the Oscars. Uh, Jay Davidson for Crying Game. Jack Nicholson for A Few Good Men. Al Pacino for Glengarry Glenn Ross. And David Tamer for Mr. Saturday Night. Just like an incredibly hilarious. That's a good, now that's a good lineup of nominees really too. Yeah. Really great. And so Gene is like uh, explaining why he picked Jay Davidson to win. Right. And goes, he also, I, he also, you, I, not to interrupt, let's mention this. He, they flash a disclaimer on the bottom of this, the screen yes. saying, says, turn down your volume if you don't want to know the twist in the crying game. Turn down your volume. If you're, if you, it says, if you haven't seen the crying game, turn down the volume now. And then Gene right. says it. And then right. Roger, they cut to Roger and he's like, you're not really going to do this. Oh, he's immediately upset. Immediately Even before furious. he does it, he, and again, it speaks to the fact that he does not know what what Gene is going to say, because as soon as he realizes what he's going to say, he's interrupting and being like, you're not going to do this, are you? And 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 then they do the thing with the Chiron. And then Gene goes, you've been warned now. So yeah. no angry calls. Right. Which is just <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> don't don't blame me. It's your fault. You fucking yeah. dummy. If you're if you get spoiled for this stupid movie, that's on you. Uh, and- yep. <laughs> he says that Jay Davidson is is a is a male actor playing a transgender woman in the movie, and that's like a big part of the the, the story, and it's like the twist of the movie. And Roger is just beside himself. He says, "You're cheating viewers out of this moment in the film." Yep. And then so that's tense. And then they go. <laughs> Roger picks uh, Al Pacino for Glengarry Glen Ross. It's a great performance. Love him in it so much. And then this is to what you're like. Don't like this was such a great. Like what we were saying before, like I, I feel like this is like a perfect encapsulation of a lot of their their values and their thoughts because like the reason Gene picks Jay Davidson is because he fully believed the character that Jay Davidson right. played. He fully believed right. that this was a transgender woman right. uh that Jay Davidson was playing and he, he totally bought the whole thing. And then Roger picks Al Pacino because he loves him in uh Glengarry Gun Ross. And to like what you were saying before, like Gene was like comparing the westerns like maybe making that young guns up but here he actually does because he's like anybody could have played uh, i saw joe montagna play alpha right he, card and he's he again great. he's saying this isn't even the best performance of this character that i have personally seen he mentions yeah joe montagna doing it on the stage and we've both seen that performance and it was a better version of that character than pacino and we can think of so many other actors who could have played this part so, so it's like already they're like he's mad. It felt like also that they turned it up because he's mad that Roger was mad yes. at him. One hundred percent. That is one hundred percent what happened. Is that Siskel is pissed off that Ebert called him out in you know already, and so clearly they rolled. The cameras are rolling. They're not stopping. And this is the same thing that would happen on a regular episode of the show. Is they would just try to keep rolling as much as they could. And what happened is you get this kind of like emotional spillover from one segment to the next is like if a review would go bad and by bad, I mean, like if they would just argue a lot, it wasn't like they said, okay, cut. 
and they would go cool off for an hour and then come back. They would just keep rolling. And so if they were already pissed off at each other, they would be pissed off at the in the next review. And that's what happens here is they're already angry at each other about the Jay Davidson thing. And so they just keep fighting about Al Pacino, uh, you know, in a movie they both like, an actor they both like, a performance they both like. But now they're fighting. And so they're just going to keep fighting. And I'm guessing that after the cameras stopped rolling and they went to commercial after this, they probably fought more because there was a whole article in TV Guide about yes. that. They, they got they were so upset about this and were fighting so much, I'm guessing, probably on stage in between, you know, takes. And then after the fact that, yeah, like TV Guide wrote this up, it was like an article in like the in 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 the entertainment news that they fought about this it's in your book man i'm gonna yeah, read yeah. this because i'm so aware good. i am aware of that yes i don't know if you remember this but it's in your book what yes so you one of the, you have a couple of quotes here that i want to just read about the al pacino thing that made me laugh that when eber like we're saying like cisco is saying like all these other people could do it and eber is like John Barrymore could have done a good job too. And it's too bad Lawrence Olivier isn't around anymore. But among the people who were nominated, the best performance was by Al Pacino. An exasperated right. Ebert said in response. And then Siskel goes, but I got news for you. Lionel Barrymore, John Barrymore, Ethel Barrymore couldn't have done the role of Jay Davidson as well as Jay Davidson did the role. Right. Just hilarious. And then you said the TV guide thing, uh, Ebert's quote tirade against Siskel's unilateral choice to spoil the crying game continued even after the show. The program is called Siskel and Ebert, Ebert said. A decision like that should have been discussed beforehand. It was arrogant of him. And then Siskel, they took that quote to Siskel. This whole thing is just, and Siskel goes, arrogant? That's a strange choice of words. We never discuss our opinions in advance. I was simply making a case for one of my picks. Siskel then accused Roger of getting, quote, angry as a 50-year-old child before taking a shot at Ebert's physical fitness. Asked whether he was worried the two might have come to blows over the crying game incident. Siskel said, that's not possible. There's not enough motor coordination. These guys are fucking just unbelievable. I mean that, that. I mean it's some. It's excuse me. It's a really nice encapsulation of their their uh, their, their relationship right there. I mean, you kind of it kind of sums it all up. And yeah, it's funny and fun, but it also gets back to those ideas about how they had such different ways of evaluating things too, right? That completely Ebert is looking at, okay, of these five performances only, which is my favorite, which is the one I think is best Al Pacino and Siskel is going, well, I'm comparing it to every performance that's ever been given and which one stands out as this thing that seems really unique or that other people could not do. And you mentioned all those actors that come up in there arguing on camera. And it's like, well, this person could have done this role and this person could have done this role. I mean, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Like if a perform, if, you know, I guess a lot of people have played Hamlet too, but I'm guessing we could all think of like the best version of Hamlet we've seen. Does that make a great Hamlet less valuable if lots of people have done Hamlet? I don't know. It's don't an know. interesting thing to debate, which is, again, why this show at least to me, is is still fun to talk about and think about. It's that it wasn't just, ho, ho, look at these guys yelling at each other and making fun of each other. Like, there actually is fun stuff to chew over here as well about movies and criticism. It's so interesting. And then, like you said, like, the rest of the show, so we mentioned before, Best Actor, they both agree Denzel is from Malcolm X should have won, right? Right. The Al Pacino yep. wins for Scent of Woman, which is an all-time hilarious makeup Oscar. 
And like Denzel clearly should have won from Malcolm X. I think anybody right. now would say that. So it's yes. not like they're off, but the reasons they picked Denzel are wildly different. I feel like, again, like Gene coming at it from like a, you know, I bought him as Malcolm X. Like I bought the transformation. He looked just like him. Gene even says, I think in this at the end, they show photos of the real Malcolm X, which I think is like right. always the hackest shit when that right. happens in nowadays in these biopics. Right. And they're like, here's yeah. what the real people look like. Today we call them computers. He's Today like, he loves it. Skills. And he loved that, Gene. I was like, how do you like this stupid hack bit? But maybe in 1992, it was novel, I guess, right? To show the real people. At the right. End. Uh, but yeah, they disagree on that. They, they, I mean, they agree but disagree hilariously. They come up, then uh, they do cinematography, like you mentioned, um, which is unforgiven, and, and a river runs through it. I don't even know why they did this cat. It's just so, it's so. It made me laugh watching this because I was like, like you said, the step, the audience is sitting there, these tourists, and like, yes, fucking Ocean Pacific wear, basically, right? Five hundred people in Mickey Mouse t-shirts and uh, flip flops are watching them discuss whether Philippe Rousselot or Jack and Green had the best cinematography of the year. But I love but I love this because again, like if you were trying to just make a show that's all drama and um, you know, make it as sexy as possible, why would you would never in a million years do this? This is a from that perspective, this is a horrible idea. Uh, but when I look at it, I go, these guys actually like care about movies and they're thinking Okay, we're gonna have movie stars and clips from movies that people have seen, and and here we have a chance to like educate people. Like they they explain what cinematography is. You know, they start the category with a definition of what a cinematographer does. Now you could say, well, that's really basic stuff. Give me a break. But again, they're talking to an audience of tourists at Walt Disney World, and they actually like take the time to say, this is what cinematography is, and let's look at some clips. And here is why this is an interesting. Uh, looking movie. Here, this is well shot because this. Look at how they frame Eastwood in this doorway here. Look at the shadows on his face. And it's like, yes, this is dry, but it's also like they've turned uh, an Oscar guessing TV special into like a lesson on film cinematography. And I just think that's so awesome in an incredibly nerdy and um, uh what's the what's the word i want to use like you would never do this today in a million years no one would have let you do it and they got away with it and i love that do you think that like this is just in general not about the oscars here but what you mentioned there i thought was interesting too do you like and again thinking about how like i was young we were kids watching the show right like through like you know 12 11 12 13 whatever how old you are watching the show do you did you get the sense or even talking to like did they know that they were getting like younger people watching they never talk down to the audience, obviously, and I don't think they gear their show for like people who don't know necessarily about film. But it is like a crash course in like film history when you're watching it, and like they're you kind of like have to keep up with them, I guess. But I mean, did you get a sense that they actually knew that they had like young people watching? At this point, I'm not sure, but certainly by a few years later, and by the end of the show, and certainly like Ebert in his later years was very aware of the impact that the show had had because there's a whole generation of folks like us who grew up watching the show right. and this was when they would be asked like well you know like how did you find out about movies or how did you discover film criticism the answer you know nine times out of ten is Siskel and Ebert mm -hmm. and so it was like they had to know it by that point at this point I think maybe they're just thinking more about again that general that they know they have like literally every week millions of people are watching this show so you know at the height of the show, you know, it's like a show that's drawing like 8 million people every single week to watch Siskel and Ebert talk about movies. You know, and even at this point, which is a few years after its ratings peak, 
we're still talking about, you know, millions of people, you know, right. like even like the lowest rating it ever got was maybe like 2 million people. So it would have been like an outrageous number today to get that many people listening or talking or watching anything about movies in that context. So they were aware that their audience was, yes, some nerds and cinephiles, but it was also just people who wanted to know, like, what what's the new movies that are playing at my movie theater this weekend? What are the movies that are going to win Oscars? Which Oscar movies should I go see when I can get them at my local video store? they recognized that their audience was very broad. And so they did tailor the show that way. Whether they knew at this point that kids like us are like 12 years old going, I want to go see Indochin. I don't, that I don't know. But that did come later. I mean, there's a, there's yeah. a really cool clip from a few years after this, from like the 96, 97. So getting towards the end of the show where they talk, and I don't know what it's originally from, but you can find it on YouTube. It's like the two of them talking about uh, advice for people who want, kids who want to be critics. Okay. So, like, clearly they knew then that they were getting letters from kids and, you know, fans and things. So, yeah, I mean, it was something they were definitely aware of, whether at this point they're tailoring their show that way, I don't know, but I do think they were tailoring the show for sure to just a very broad audience of people who are more casually interested in movies so then they do supporting actress this year is the year marissa tomei wins for my cousin Vinny. yes they barely they barely right a great win that they barely even meant they don't even mention her they 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 mentioned her name and that was it the only other person but but i what i wrote down that i thought was funny is in the special they kind of they had a couple of like like bumpers in and out of breaks with like famous people that they clearly got like from red carpet and that one Christian Slater Christian is like, Slater. Marissa Tomei for my cousin Vinny. I'm like, goddamn, Christian Slater was on it. He knew. Right. I mean, maybe he voted for her. I don't know he if he was did. in the Academy, but yeah, like, yes, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. A lot of the people that they, in those little bumpers, though, they're like, I, I don't know. I don't want to say anything. Michael Douglas don't. is in there and he goes, I'm not answering. He basically is like, no, I, I right. probably worked with all these people. I'm not answering it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It just shows you why nobody wants to talk about, yeah, their oh. picks. Exactly. They were just like, nope, not. I'm going to pass on that. Uh, so then they picked Judy Davis for husbands and wives. Pretty much, I think they're pretty much in agreement on that one. It didn't seem like that was a really like a lot of difference there. No, no, and the and Siskel uh, also like always talks a lot again about like I was watching this movie trying to see how it relates to the real story of Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. Again, that's like a recurring theme oh, on this episode. That's all. Yeah, he keeps bringing that idea of reality and truth and what are the documentary aspects of a fictional movie. It's, it's um, amazing that he yeah. does this all. It's like the whole time we'll get to the end here. Like I said, like with Michelle Pfeiffer, that's right. like his big problem with that. Uh, then they do best original song. This one just made me, I was howling laughing with this one because. So bizarre. So the best original song this year uh, at the Oscars was uh, the winner is A Whole New World from Aladdin. A, a pretty classic tune. An iconic movie song. Uh, Friend Like Me was another nominee. Robin Williams, obviously. Another great, great movie song. Then two from the massive successful movie The Bodyguard. I have nothing and run to you. Right. Both Great. good songs. Pretty good, good songs. songs. Famous big, songs. Big movie soundtrack. And then the fifth yep. nominee, Beautiful Maria of My Soul from the Mambo Kings. Gotta say, Matt, not a not one of uh, not on my Spotify wrapped uh this year. <laughs> so, so I was like, so watching this cold, I'd not watched it before, obviously. I don't remember watching it. They go through the songs, and I'm like, well, clearly they're gonna pick one of these Aladdin ones. And Gene goes first, and his choice is uh, Beautiful Maria of My Soul from Mambo Kings. 
And then Roger goes, well, same. I'm like, these two idiots both get the same stupid song. They loved it. The movie no one cared about it came out in the winter, it sounded like, like of the previous winter. They're like basically 12 months ago. They both picked it as like their fave. It's like these guys really do just go by the beat of their own drum and yet somehow still end up agreeing even though they don't even agree. Right. I mean, uh, perhaps that was a case of, you know, they loved supporting little movies that maybe hadn't gotten a lot of attention. And perhaps that was their way of doing that in this context is that the movie had not been a big hit, but they really liked it and they wanted to, you know, talk about it and encourage people to see it. I think they even say maybe like you should rent it in that segment. Um, and so I, I, I wonder if that was part of it. Now they, they, they brought, they seem to genuinely love the song that's from the movie. I'm not, and we've established they're going to be honest. Like what you said, like they, God bless them. They didn't care if people liked Aladdin, they liked the Mambo Kings, but I do think it served that additional purpose for them of, they always loved encouraging people to see movies that they liked that flopped at the, at, at, in theaters. Uh, that was that was a perpetual theme of the show. So I do think that was part of it. But yeah, it's fun to like see some of the picks here that sometimes at the time might have seemed like a, a great choice. And then in hindsight, you know, history, the Oscars are one thing and history is another thing. And then the last one is Best Picture. I found this. So they both pick Howard's End. And, and Siskel says, I think he came down for him between Howard's End and The Crying Game. And it sounds like he picked Howard's End because he rated it slightly higher on his year-end list than The Crying Game. Yeah, that's the reason he gives, basically. And then uh, and then Roger picks Howard's End, too. And Unforgiven wins. And I guess they don't seem to really care about Unforgiven. I was just kind of a little surprised by this. They don't particularly, yeah, they don't particularly like it. And in fact, I'm pretty sure at least one of them, I'm going to look this up really quick in my notes here. I'm pretty sure at least one of them gave it thumbs down on their, yes, yeah, Siskel gave it thumbs down in their original review. And I don't think Ebert was all that positive either. I'm I'm pretty sure there's a second segment somewhere in the history of the show. Um, oh, here's what it is. So, yeah, so they reviewed the movie when it first came out. It gets, a, you know, one thumb up, one thumb down. And, and Ebert does not sound all that positive at the time, which now, you know, we think of that as kind of one of Eastwood's like, you know, later career masterpieces. And I don't think people think of that as like a, a huge miss by the... Academy, certainly not among those five movies, at least like maybe, you know, like Ebert seems uh, most upset that Malcolm X isn't even nominated. Like he goes out of his way to mention that, like, why isn't that movie in this category at all? Um, and he's sort of like picking between like less movies he likes less in that case. But then what happened was with Unforgiven was, yeah, they review it. Siskel gives it thumbs down. Ebert gives it a mild thumbs up, but then it winds up on Ebert's top 10 list of 92 okay and when they do that he he basically like doesn't even like talk about the movie he like basically almost not really a, an apology but i think he calls it i'm looking at my notes here he says he has to explain why it's here because he didn't give it that positive a review he says i didn't react to it as best film material maybe because i was somewhat distracted by viewing it on the eve of my approaching matrimony my attention was elsewhere Last week, I looked at the movie again with a somewhat better focus and realized fully what a good movie it is, how well acted and directed it is. Do you feel like, so like, it's funny, like we, I, we talked about, I think you talked about in the book, there's, they don't, they don't really ever change each other's minds, but Broken Arrow was one where they did, right? Like, we're yeah. like, I, I forget, I actually forget the, or was it Gene 
Uh, Roger goes thumbs. Uh, does Gene go thumbs down? Roger had thumbs down, and then Gene was like a mild Gene, thumbs up. And he goes Gene gives down. his review is thumbs down. Uh, in the case of Broken Arrow, Roger responds and says, "We kind of agree. I just didn't like it as much as you, and I didn't like this, this, and this." And then Gene is like, "You know what? I'm gonna go for the first time ever. I'm gonna change my vote." And you're right. What am I defending here? And then and then he tries to get him to go back on cop and a half, and Roger yes. just dug in. Yes, still on it. But Correct. the thing that's funny is like I feel like a lot of like my my even though that's obviously very present in the show, my sense of Ebert is that he was willing to go back, certainly in print at least, and like reevaluate movies, right? And like kind of re-review his own like take on them. Did you like so I'm not surprised to hear that he would have gone back on Unforgiven, but I feel like Siskel would never have done that in a million years. <laughs> like he is like not gonna do that. Siskel occasion. I mean, I think maybe perhaps uh, this is just my perspective. I think maybe Ebert was a little more willing, but there are examples of Siskel doing that as well. Okay. He would uh, he, for example, like gave a thumbs down or negative review to Slapshot. And then in later years, when he was asked that question of like, well, what movie did you have? Did your opinion change on after uh, a review? Slapshot was an example he often gave. He sometimes also mentioned Apocalypse Now, which he also gave a thumbs down to. And he was never the biggest fan of even after the fact, but did he would later concede, well, it was a better movie than I thought. And I just want to throw in here, after Ebert in this top 10 list explains why suddenly this movie he didn't like that much is now on his top 10, Siskel's response was, I think I liked you better five months ago. (laughs) When he gave it a less positive review. So just yeah, they just did not like Clint uh, and Unforgiven. So that so they both go Howard's End. Great. Uh, I feel like that's a good. I don't know. What is your? I, is there Howard's End discourse nowadays? I don't even know. No, not. I. I, I mean, People no. Like is, I, what? What would even show? be like? Is I I, I, I. I. None of these movies have really had. I mean, I guess Unforgiven for a long time was considered like, you know, a great western, a classic like neo western. I don't really feel like people talk about it very much anymore uh, these days. I mean, maybe A Few Good Men is probably the, the the movie with the biggest impact here because it had that very famous Nicholson performance and the line that everyone still quotes, you know, you can't handle the truth, this which they showed. That was like, I mean, it's like the ultimate Oscar clip scene. And sure enough, they showed it in that category when they were talking about Nicholson's nomination. It's it's very funny. This is a weird year. 92 is just like not the great. I mean, like I'm looking at like the movies that they we're not, it's not Ebert, Siskel and Ebert's fault, but it's like, I mean, the top grossing movies this year are Aladdin, The Bodyguard, Home Alone 2, Basic Instinct, which I actually think is great and probably would right. beat one, Lethal Weapon 3, Batman Returns, Hugo Men's Sister Act, Dracula, and Wayne's World. Wayne's not like World. The, the big Oscar, like the player was this year. Yeah, I'm, in. yeah, I've just looked up like their top 10 lists for this year and like yeah. we haven't once mentioned the player which was on both their top 10 lists, right. which is a great, great movie, but is also like really mean to Hollywood. So clearly the people voting for the Oscars mm-hmm. was, were like, no. Uh, one False Move is a movie they really loved. It was Ebert. number one on Siskel's list, number Sis- two on Ebert's. Siskel mentions it in this episode. I forget which. Yes. Guy, like, at the very end, the I end. think he mentions it when they're talking about movies that are, you know, great best picture, you know, best movies of the year that yes. didn't get loved. Yes. That's right. Malcolm X, obviously, we talked about that's on both their lists. Um, actually, Siskel had Wayne's World in his top 10 and Under Siege, the Steven Seagal Under Siege. Uh, great movie. I, respect, I remember, doesn't Tommy Lee Jones get stabbed in the head to die? Isn't that how he dies in that movie? Uh, yes, I believe that's correct. Yes, there is an elaborate knife fight at the end where they're both 
it's a lot of like uh, POV shots where the actor is just holding a knife and going, if people are watching, they'll be able to see like, literally this is like, there's like 10 minutes of this. I, I remember watching that on, I vividly remember watching that with my dad on like VHS, like in uh, when it came oh, out. Oh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fabulous. Classic. Yeah, it's 10 out of 10 for sure. <laughs> and Ebert also has, I mean, some of the movies we talked about, they both really did like Howard's End. Uh, they both have the crying game on their lists. Uh, he does have Unforgiven, as we discussed. And then Bad Lieutenant is another movie that's kind of, you know, still considered a pretty amazing movie of its type. Not really an Oscar movie, necessarily. It's too edgy for that. But uh, other other movies I saw here on looking at the list was like um, A League of Their Own, which I don't expect them to maybe love. But I think that has actually had like a great like lifespan that people still talk about. Reservoir Dogs was this year. Yes. Uh, which I don't think they liked, right? Reservoir Dogs, they gave two, Reservoir Dogs, they gave two thumbs down to, actually. Right. So, yeah. And uh, what else? We talked about Glengarry Glen Gary, Glenn Ross a little because of the Pacino. Last Mohicans was this year. So it's like not the great. I mean, there's like good movies, but not nothing for Oscars, really. Certainly when you got like these other things. And then they do. Yeah, like we said, they did the the end of this is like what was the worst this nomination, basically, I think. Or do they call it? Did they, is that worst? No, it is literally worst nomination. Worst nomination of the year in any category. And so Gene picks Michelle Pfeiffer in Love Field. Which is a funny movie because I think, let me, uh, oh no, it's not, that's something else. I was thinking of Blue Sky, uh, which is Jessica Lange, which is another one of these like 90s. Uh, Prestige pictures. 90s like actress nominations. Blue Sky was a movie that was like delayed for years. They released it in 94 and it got her an Oscar nomination. But like, this is like, same kind of thing. I feel like Love Field, totally forgettable. Uh, and and Jean's like, oh, I didn't buy her at all. It's like a dumb Southern person. And people in Hollywood play southern people as dumb basically right isn't that what he comes up with or like just like i don't even know it just yeah i mean he's he's uh, he just does quote unquote doesn't buy it like he doesn't you know he didn't think she was convincing and yeah i mean you said this you know it's like a very forgettable movie i think you could just say it's a for i mean it's a forgotten movie like i, I not this is what this is like when i was rewatching this um episode uh, this week to talk to you i was like look what is love field like i didn't even I, I always remembered it because Dennis Haysbert is the male lead, and then D Dennis Haysbert like, is in it. He's yeah. in Heat and like Major League, and I remember why. I think I probably watched it at the time, or at least was aware of it because I knew him from like those other things. Like, oh, like Major League, right? Wasn't Major League had to be right around here? I feel like. Um, well, he's in Major League Two, not in Major League One. No, right? he's in Major I, League One, right? Isn't he Serrano Major League? Let me see. Is it? Is, is, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I, I, I'm. Can, I'm. I don't know. He is. I think he's he is. OK, you're right. He's definitely not. So 89 was Major League. So, OK, this is 90, whatever. Uh, I need to revisit the Major League. You got trilogy. it. It's great. Great time. Yeah. I don't know what Raj and, and Gene thought of him, but this guy gives it a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, and then Roger choices a few good men for best picture, which hurt my soul because I do enjoy the movie. But it's also probably not as good as all the other movies they talked about. So. I, that's another one where they were like really down on it. And I was thinking like, it. that's one of the movies of this year that people actually remember. I, I haven't revisited it recently, I, but it made that kind of made me want to, because I mean, it's a, you know, Sorkin, obviously it's one of like the early Sorkin scripts that gets made. And I, now I think maybe its reputation is better. It's definitely got a better reputation because people like us basically probably were like, uh, enjoyed it at the time. Right. And it's right. like a rewatchable kind of staple but i could see why he picked it just because i think it's like a little hack and it's like very hollywood right and i think if roger's looking at this if thinking of how he reviews things or enjoys things i wonder if he was just like it's not really 
a success in its own right. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. It just feels like a little. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I, I'm just I'm looking this up now. It was not only like one of his first produced scripts. It is his first produced script. I mean, he'd done plays and things, but like that this is the first like movie of one of his scripts. I do wonder if this comes out 10 years later after some of his other things have come out. Sorkin, I'm, I'm saying like as his reputation grows, does suddenly the opinion of this movie change? Maybe it would maybe. have. Maybe it wouldn't have. Maybe. But um, I, I, I do wonder that. And, th- and that's it. Then they just the balconies close. They uh, they run a whole bunch of credits, and that's the end, basically. And all the that's crowd it. is like, "Now we're gonna go get some hot dogs and see Mickey." Yeah, Mouse. yeah. I was gonna say, let's go ride the Tower of Terror, guys. Come on. <laughs> Any what? anything else here on this episode uh, that you thought of that you were like, "This is great," or no? No, I mean, I think we kind of covered it. I mean, I guess uh, we've talked about the things that I thought w- uh, were interesting. One that this exists at all, that this was a thing that you could mm-hmm. have. I mean, it's sort of wild to even consider. Uh, a, a TV show about film critics as this huge pop culture defining thing now at all, but then that they could do special episodes in front of a live audience and get them to like politely applaud when they mention, you know, Howard's end, you know, or like, and my pick is, you know, from the Mambo Kings. It's just a very surreal site that you have a hard time uh it's, it's, imagining and they did and they did this for years this was like we picked this one because it's a very it's a fun episode it has this very memorable disagreement over the crying game thing in it the spoiler aspect but like they did this at at mgm studios for a number of years we didn't meant oh the other thing that's ridiculous that we didn't mention is the opening that's like a james bond thing with like a vaguely the peter gunn music is kind yes, of playing yes. and they're wandering around you know the the mgm studios back lot you know, as if they're, I don't know, spies or something. It's so weird. It's very weird. Yeah. Do you and think they enjoy doing the bits like that? That's a good question. I mean, they 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 generally liked doing shtick. Like, they yeah. loved being on Letterman. They ne- they supposedly never turned down an idea on Letterman. Any The dumber the idea, the more they were into it. And they would, you know, and they would do fake commercials. And they did, you know, cop parodies. Siskel and Ebert on the edge and things like that. This, I don't know, though, because it's not I mean, it's sort of a parody, but I don't if you look at them in this, they don't exactly look like they're really performing with all of their hearts and souls. There's, It's a little more like, I don't know, with a tongue in cheek or a wink. So I, I don't know. That's an interesting uh, question to ponder is how how into that aspect were they? I don't how know. into the idea of having to go to MGM Studios and, and do this were they? I think I, I, I seem to remember someone mentioning to me or reading somewhere that Gene liked doing these because he could bring his family. He had kids. They could go to Disney and have a great time. Um, so, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's a very surreal, fascinating artifact of a totally different era in movies and also in like Oscar discourse. It's great for Oscar. It is really funny watching them do the Oscar discourse. Nowadays, it's like obviously a cottage industry here, man. I don't know if you know this, but like I, I'm really vaguely like aware talking about talking about the Oscars. So these guys were a real tra- another way. They changed movies forever. I'm tying it back to the book. The Look at film. that. Look How at that. Change movies forever. Matt, you're going to be at if you're watching this or listening to this and you're in Rhode Island. That's going to be at the United Theater in Westerly in Rhode Island on, on Saturday, November 25th. That's right. Other events this month, including the Gene Siskel Film Center in Chicago on November 28th and the yeah. Rizzoli Bookstore in New York on November 30th. 
That's right. Yes. So thank get you. To, get there for those. Sign Matt will sign a book for you. I and, will. Uh, you put a lump of coal under the tree with the book. That's right. right. That's Give do. it to your kids. Make sure your small children get the gift of Gene and Roger this this Christmas or Hanukkah. They'll love it. All right. Uh, Matt, this was great. Thank you for doing this. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Bye. For all things Hollywood competition and award season, head to goldderby.com and follow us on social media at Gold Derby.